Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 24. That will be our sermon text for this morning. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been working through the book of Genesis, and uh, we actually started Genesis a while ago. We did Genesis 1 through 11, and then we went to the Gospel of John, and we did looked at John 1 through 5, and then we came back to Genesis, and uh, we started back up in Genesis 12, and we're going to go until Genesis about the middle of 25, which is the end of the Abraham story. So we're getting close to the end of the Abraham story before we move back to John, and then we'll be in John uh, 6 through 12. So we're, we're coming toward the end of the story of Abraham uh, this week and next week. Before we read Genesis 24, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you uh, that we do not need to fear when we face the trials of life, but that you are with us in the midst of them, as we just sang. And uh, Father, we pray that you would cement that truth to our hearts, that we would rest in you in the midst of our trials and difficulties. Father, we pray that you would just help us to, to, to remember that you are sovereign in all of life and that we can rejoice in that and rest in that and delight in that. We pray that you would help us to rest in your faithfulness in the midst of the details of our lives. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus this morning as we come to the scriptures. Help us to see your love for us in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac." The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there." But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink. And I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, 
Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for the camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms... And heard the words of Rebekah his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given his flocks and herds, given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you have come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who shall say to me, drink, and I will draw from your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. 
So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me to, by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, then I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they rose in the morning, he said, "'Send me away to my master.' Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is the man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, her mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. How can you secure your future? There is a, a Christian caricature that if you just read providence rightly, well, then I'll know God's will and everything will work out. Some Christians spend a lot of time trying to, quote, discern God's will, but it looks as much like reading tea leaves as anything else. They want to stay in God's will, they say, but by that they mean figuring out God's particular hidden purposes for their lives and then following that plan. Our text this morning could actually be misconstrued in this way, right? If you just pray the right way and follow God's signs, then everything will turn out for you. Of course, the world tells us the opposite, which is that God is not at work. Stop looking for signs and get busy making your own destiny. So to the questions, will God make my plans prosper? Some Christians say, yes, if you can just figure out what God is doing and get on board with that, if you can pray the right prayer and interpret the right sign, God will bless you. And of course, non-Christians will say, no, 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 right? Just don't wait around for God to make your life better. Get to work doing something about it, right? Be the change. And yet our text this morning uh, does not show us how to get what we want out of life. It's not a how-to manual for how to discern God's will. It highlights God's faithfulness to his promises. 
It's not about how to get what you want out of life, but about how God is at work to fulfill his purposes in the mundane. God is at work fulfilling his purposes. Rather than trying to discern God's secret will or trying to take matters into your own hands to make life work according to your plans, we can rest in the faithfulness of God to his purposes for our good and for his glory. And so we're going to look at God's faithfulness this morning, Uh, God's faithfulness to Abraham, God's faithfulness to Jesus, and God's faithfulness to us. So first, God's faithfulness to Abraham. Uh, This story is uh, really a masterpiece of Hebrew literature. It's the longest story in the book of Genesis, you may have noticed as we read. Uh, So we need to spend some time just sitting in the story. Abraham is old. Sarah, his wife of many years, died in chapter 23 at 127, and so Abraham was at least 137. He was, as the text says, well advanced in years. And verse 1 tells us that the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. God had fulfilled his promise to bless Abraham. God had said it, and he did it. But there is still one loose end that needs to be tied up. God had blessed Abraham. He had given him the promised Uh, the promise of land and the burial plot as a down payment for that. God had promised him descendants and had given him Isaac as the first fruits of that. But how could Abraham's descendants inherit the land and how could there be any descendants to inherit the land if Isaac doesn't have any children? And how can Isaac have any children if he doesn't first have a wife? And so in order for God's covenant promises to Abraham to come through, Isaac needs a bride. And so Abraham calls his most trusted servant, uh, the one who had charge of all that he had, and he has him swear an oath. He does this by having him put his hand under Abraham's thigh. Apparently, that was a thing. And yet, some commentators think it's even worse than you think because they say thigh is likely a euphemism. Aren't you glad we shake hands? Abraham wants his servant to swear not to get a bride for Isaac from among the Canaanites, but from his old country and kindred, and not to let Isaac go back to his homeland. You see, Abraham took seriously that God had taken him from his father's house, verse 7, and swore to give Abraham's offspring this land. He doesn't want to jeopardize that that by sending Isaac back. Abraham didn't want to, to turn back the clock, to undo the progress made. Abraham is committed to God's promises to the end. But Isaac still needs a bride. He can't get one from the Canaanites. Most likely, uh, this is both because of their religion and their morality, uh, though we're not told explicitly here. Later, we will see the sin of the Canaanites in both their idolatry and their immorality. But if not from the locals, right, where's a, a guy to meet a nice girl in the ancient Near East? So Abraham sends his servant to his country and his kindred. Uh, the servant wonders, what if, what if the woman doesn't want to come back? And this brings added tension to the story. Even if he does find a nice girl, maybe she doesn't want to travel. Maybe she doesn't want to follow some guy halfway around the ancient world. Maybe she won't come. And if that is the case, Abraham says his servant gets a pass. Uh, verse 8, if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath. Only whatever you do, do not take Isaac back there. Isaac is a pilgrim in the promised land. Don't undo what God has done. So the servant leaves. He he takes 10 of Abraham's camels. 
Now, camels uh, were rare in those days. They were only a recently domesticated animal, and so this likely showed Abraham's wealth. And he comes to Mesopotamia, uh, not the southern part with Babylon and Ur, but the northern part with Haran, where Abraham settled after leaving Ur. And he comes to the city of Nahor, perhaps named after Abraham's brother, or perhaps meaning just the city where Nahor lived. And after this long journey, Abraham's servant has the camels kneel down outside the city by a well. Now it was evening. After the heat of the day had passed, the time, verse 11 says, when women go out to draw water. And there Abraham's servant prays. Look again at verses 12 to 14. Verse 12, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. It's actually a brilliant test. See, we read it and we might think that Abraham's servant is simply seeking a sign, and that's true, he does want a sign, but it's not random. He's really devised a test of character. You see, he's looking for a woman who will show hospitality to a stranger, hospitality like Abraham, a woman who will both give him water and go the extra mile and offer to water his animals as well. And the text says, before he had finished speaking, Uh, Now, you know when something happens, quote, before someone had even finished speaking, whatever that thing is, it's going to relate to what was just said. And so it's, it's as if he said, no sooner had this man prayed than immediately what he prayed came about. Behold, Rebekah. Born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Here comes Abraham's relative as soon as he finishes praying. Verse 16, the young woman was very attractive, a maiden whom no man had known, which is to say she is marriable. And the servant sees her and runs. This is his chance. He says, please give me a little water. Uh, Really, he asks for just a sip. Just give me a sip of water. And uh, she says, drink, my Lord. Uh, And she gives him the jar. In other words, she goes beyond. He, He says, can I have a sip? And she says, drink as much as you want. Now, he's waiting for the rest. He begins to gulp down water after his journey, but he's waiting, wondering, will she offer water to his animals as well? Is she the one? Verse 19 says, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will drink, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Now, uh, we don't fully appreciate the magnitude of what she just said. Uh, She doesn't just say, I'll give your animals a drink as well. She says, I will draw water for your camels until they have finished drinking. Now, camels, I'm told, can drink a lot of water, like 20 to 30 gallons at a time a lot. And she just offered to draw water for 10 camels. Uh, So verse 20, uh, she gets to work. Verse 20 says... So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. And verse 21, the man just sits there and stares. Uh, We're told he's he's looking to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels finally finish drinking, he gives her some gold jewelry and asks two questions. One, whose daughter are you? And two, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? 
She tells them she's the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, wife of Nahor, and yes, they have plenty of straw and fodder and room. And at the mention of Nahor, Abraham's servant recognizes God's hand and he bows down and worships. And he says in verse 27, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. He says, basically, exactly what I was looking for just happened. I found someone from my father's family. Rebecca runs, tells her family. Laban then runs to meet the man, Rebecca's brother Laban. And you might think, well, Laban, there you go. He's just being hospitable, running to meet the man. But the writer quickly corrects that misunderstanding. In, in verse 30, he says, as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, then he went to the man, right? Uh, what moved Laban was the gold. He sees the jewelry and he goes, this is the guy I've got to meet. And if you're unsure of this, right, just stick around in Genesis. Uh, the more we get to know Laban, the slimier he becomes. Uh, at this point, the servant knows this is the girl for Isaac, but of course he has to convince her family of that. And it can't be easy to show up on someone's doorstep with a proposal of marriage for someone they've never seen before. I haven't tried it. I don't know if any of you have. Uh, but he launches into his story. And he talks about how God had blessed Abraham and that Abraham has one son who will inherit the whole lot. He talks about Abraham's loyalty to his family, directing his servant to find a bride from among his father's house and his clan, a bit more specific even than Abraham said. Uh, but then he, he talks about God's presence. At this point, the servant gets into the whole story again, right? The whole story is basically told twice in this chapter. And he goes, he, both he talks about how he prayed in detail and about how things came about in detail just as he prayed, ending again in his bowing in worship. And you see the point, the emphasis of the chapter is just as he prayed, so God did. We've now heard the whole story twice for emphasis, and you've heard it three times because I just retold it to you. And what's the point? Uh, Hebrew narrative which tends to be fairly sparse, right? They, they pack in a lot uh, into a little. The, the details are always uh, very specific and very purposeful. And so repetition is always significant. And the point of the story in Hebrew narrative is often, uh, often put on the lips of one of the characters. It's, it's not left up to the reader to figure it out for themselves. And that's what happens here. In verse 49, the servant basically says, God has shown steadfast love to Abraham. What about you? Are you going to show the same love and faithfulness to Abraham that God has? Tell me quick. If not, I've got other wells to get to. Uh, but in verse 50, uh, they give their answer. Laban and Bethuel answered and said, this thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. See, here's the, the conclusion of the story is this is from God. How can we go against it? Who can deny that God led you to this place and to Rebecca? Now, it seems a little bit like a guy saying to a girl, God told me we're supposed to get married, right? What can they possibly say at that point? Don't worry, we'll come back to that. But again, Abraham's servant bows and worships in verse 52, and then he gives gifts, most likely the dowry to Rebecca, her brother and mother. The next morning, the servant is anxious to get back to Abraham, but her mother and brother are not so keen on her leaving. And they say in verse 55, let her, let her stay for a while. And it's actually not clear in Hebrew whether they mean 10 days or 10 months. 
Uh, but either way, they're not ready to let her leave. Maybe, perhaps for Laban at least, he's hoping for more gifts from their new wealthy friend. Uh, but finally, the question is put to Rebecca. Now, this is, this is actually the climax of the story. Because remember back in verse 5, the servant said, what if the woman is not willing to go? In verse 8, Abraham said, well, if she's not willing, you're free from this oath. And so now's the moment of decision, right? Will she be willing to go or not? Has all of this been for nothing? Rebecca says, with clarity and decisiveness, I will go. So Rebecca's family blesses her, verse 60, with a blessing that looks remarkably like God's oath to Abraham in chapter 22. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Rebecca is the one, we're being told, who is going to carry on the promises to Abraham. She will become the next mother of the faithful. God is going to use her to make Abraham's offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and cause them to possess the gate of their enemies. And Rebecca, her nurse, and her young women mount the camels and head to Isaac. Rebecca takes up residence in Sarah's tent, showing that she is now the new matriarch. She becomes Isaac's wife, and he loves her and is comforted after his mother's death. What a story. Uh, but what does it all mean? Uh, here is the, the single most important point of the story, I think. It's fairly simple and straightforward, actually, but it's that God is faithful to keep his covenant promise to Abraham. He doesn't let the promise die with Isaac. He provides a bride for Isaac. If those promises are going to come through, Isaac needs a bride, so God provides that bride. Now, that's the point of the prayer that, that the servant prays. That's the point of the affirmation of Laban and Bethuel. That's the point of the request for success in verse 12 and the, the fourfold repetition of God prospering the servant's journey in verse 21 and 40 and 42 and 56. God had provided a bride for Isaac. God is keeping his promises to Abraham, working them out in time and space to make Abraham a great nation, to multiply his descendants, to give them the land, and to bless the nations through Abraham and his seed. But of course, it all depends. The promises all depend on Isaac, and so it all depends on Rebekah. And so God was at work to bring about the fulfillment of his promises through these providential means. Through mundane providence and the prayers of his people, God was fulfilling his promises. Okay, so let's, let's take the next step. Let's move from talking about God's faithfulness to Abraham to second, in light of Abraham's story, thinking about God's faithfulness to Jesus. This story, again, it's, it's, it's a, a masterpiece of Hebrew literature, uh, but the question, of course, for us is what do we do with it? It's a, it's a neat story. It's cool how Moses weaves the story together, but what do we do with it? Uh, should we pray for signs like Abraham's servant? Should we all be servant-hearted like Rebecca? Uh, when we have unexpected guests, we can't water their camels. What, what do we do? Do we offer to change their oil? Uh, should we prepare for marriage by meditating in a field like Isaac? Should we take oaths by placing our hand under each other's thighs? Should we marry only from our father's house? That would get weird. Uh, did, did God give this text to teach us how to pray? Uh, did God give this text to teach us how to find a spouse? Uh, did God give this text to give us dating advice? Right? All you single guys out there, should you be looking for a 10-camel woman? Right? No, that's not what the point of the story is. Um, just in case that was unclear. Uh, 
There, there was a sermon by a Bible teacher whose name I won't mention to protect the guilty, uh, where he used this passage to talk to young people about marriage. And let me tell you, getting marriage tips from this passage will leave you in some weird spots. So what are we to do with Isaac and Rebekah? Well, in Luke 24, 27, we are told of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And we're told of Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so here's our question. How does this text reveal to us the things concerning Jesus? God made promises to Abraham of seed and land and blessing, descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, the whole land of Canaan as his own, and blessing to Abraham and all nations through him. Those promises, Scripture tells us, are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Paul tells us he is the seed of Abraham. In his resurrection, Jesus tells us he has been given not just the land of Canaan, but heaven and earth. And all nations can now find their blessing in Jesus, the seed of Abraham. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has purchased our reconciliation to the Father and guaranteed our future inheritance in the land. So in in this story, the the story of a a bride for Isaac, we see both a, a furthering of the story that will lead to Jesus and a little piece of the pattern of God's work in Jesus. So we see both the the furthering of this bigger story of Christ, but also we see a little bit of the pattern of that story at work. So first, this story furthers the story, right? There is simply the fact that if Jesus is going to come as Abraham's seed, Isaac needs to have children, right? God, by his providence, providence has to be at work moving us forward, Isaac needs to have children. Again, God is working out the story. God is going to fulfill his promises through Jesus, but first we have to get to Jesus. This story is a part of the story. God's faithfulness here to Abraham enables God's faithfulness later in Jesus. The coming of Jesus can't happen apart from the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. God, by his providence, is moving the story along. But this story not only gives us, gets us a little farther down the line, in itself, it, it is a preview. It's a picture of a piece of that later story, right? God was faithful to Abraham. He kept his promises to Abraham. He provided a bride for Isaac so that the covenant seed could continue. God keeping his promises to Abraham is a foretaste of God keeping his promises to Jesus. God's promises of seed and land and blessing were still in force when Jesus comes on the scene, Israel was numerous, but they did not possess the gate of those who hated them. In fact, those who hated them possessed their gates. Their land was occupied by Rome. It seemed as if God's promises to Abraham had failed. Jesus comes as the seed of Abraham. He he lives a righteous life. He entrusts himself to the Father, but he's falsely accused. He's tried and convicted and wrongly sentenced to death. He is crucified and buried. Once again, it seems as if God's promises have failed. The enemies of God had won the day. But of course, that was not the end. God was at work through the messiness of life, through the circumstances, even through the sins of those who accused and killed Jesus. Jesus went to the cross according to God's plan and purpose. Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
but Jesus not only died, he also rose. And when he rose, he was given all authority in heaven and on earth. He was raised as king of heaven and earth. That means that Jesus now possesses the gates of his enemies. He reigns as king over all. And as the good news of Jesus goes out, Jesus is more and more possessing the gates of his enemies as people from every tribe, tongue, and nation come to know and submit to King Jesus. So the application of this story is not found in coercing girls to marry you because you prayed about it and God gave you a sign. Don't do that. This story is not ultimately about you or me. The application of this story is in seeing the story move us forward to the cross and the resurrection where God is faithful to his promises to Abraham by raising Jesus, the child of Abraham, from the dead. By going to the cross and bearing sin and rising from the dead, Jesus secures the fulfillment of the promises of God, first for himself in the resurrection, but then for all nations who look to him, because all nations will be blessed in him. And so God's faithfulness to Abraham points us forward to God's faithfulness to Jesus, the child of Abraham, which leads us finally, third, to God's faithfulness to us. Some uh, wrongly turn to this chapter and say, see, God prospered Abraham's servant when he prayed. If you will only pray, God will prosper your plans as well. And by all means, pray and seek God's blessing. Uh, Don't let anything I say discourage you from bringing your needs and cares to our Father. But think about that in light of the cross. Jesus prayed He entrusted himself to the Father, but he sought not his own will, his plans, but the Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done, Jesus said. And prospering for Jesus meant going to the cross and dying for sin and then rising from the dead. So what does God's faithfulness to us look like? God is faithful. He, He will prosper you, but not your plans and not all right now. See, God is at work in the lives of his children through providence to bring about his purposes and fulfill his promises. God will fulfill his promises. Finding a bride for Isaac is is not a paradigm that we are to all follow, uh, but it is a piece in God's plan to fulfill his covenant promises. And God is still about the business of fulfilling his covenant promises. That is what he wants to do in your life, realize bring about his covenant promises. Jesus, by coming in our place, obeying God's commands where, where, that we were to obey, and bearing God's wrath that we deserve for our sin, purchased God's blessing for us, and so the realizing of God's covenant promises in our lives. God's will for your life is not to fulfill all your hopes and dreams. I'm, I'm sorry if no one has ever told you that, or if someone gave you the wrong idea about Christianity, that if you come to Jesus, all your plans will come to pass. This isn't your story, but it's better. God's plans and purposes are better than we can imagine. The promises of God's covenant are ours in Jesus. This means, first, reconciliation with God, restored intimacy with our Father, Forgiveness from sin's guilt, release from sin's power, freedom from sin's curse, climaxing in freedom from death itself when we are raised from the dead on the last day. It means peace on earth and goodwill toward men, a renewed society which begins in the church and the hope of all things being made new. And so not your plans, but God's plans, which are even better. And not all now. God will fulfill his purposes and, 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 and realize that is bring to fruition his promises in your life. 
Some of them will come about right now, but all of them will only come to fullness on the last day. Abraham believed that God would fulfill his promises. He acted on that by sending his servant to get a bride for Isaac. But he said, if she won't come back, you're free from the oath. And similarly, do you remember uh, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, who were thrown into the fiery furnace for not bowing down to the golden statue in Babylon? They said to King Nebuchadnezzar at the time, God will save us from the furnace, but if not, we will still not worship your golden idol. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not having a crisis of faith in that moment when they said, and, but if not. They believed in God, but they also knew that they could not control him. God would fulfill his purposes in their lives, whichever way it went. Abraham believed in God that he would fulfill his promises, but he knew he could not control God. So he said, if she won't come back, you're free. And this, this is faith, right? This is believing that God will do what he has said, but being open to God's means, method, and timing. God will bring about his promises in his way, in his time. Our job is to wait on him. We wait on God as we rest in Christ, who has secured the promises of God for us. We wait on God as we trust God's sovereignty. Uh, we don't have to be superstitious, but we can know that God is working to fulfill his good purposes, even if we don't understand what that is. God is in control over every circumstance. We, we can trust his work in our circumstances. He is at work by his providence to bring about his purposes, to fulfill his promises. You don't have to understand that. You don't have to be able to point to specifics you certainly don't have to figure out exactly what God is doing in your life. Just trust him. He who raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your life. We wait on God as we rest in Christ and as we trust God's sovereignty. And finally, we wait on God as we prayerfully pursue faithfulness. Abraham knew the promises of God. He didn't know how they would come about. So he simply moved forward in faith, trusting God to work out his promises in his way, in his time. And God used Abraham and his servant's faithfulness to do just that. And that's our job, right? Prayerfully pursue faithfulness in the expectation of God's blessing, knowing that that may be experienced in the present, but will only be experienced in fullness in the future. The guarantee of God's blessing, of course, is the resurrection, right? The cross is the present path of suffering and difficulty, but the resurrection is a picture of future blessing, which shows us that whatever happens, as we saw also last week, our present labor is not in vain. As you serve Jesus in the present, whatever comes about, whether everything comes together in a neat and tidy story like Genesis 24, or whether your life looks like Passion Week between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, you can know that your labor is not in vain. The resurrection is coming. This is why, again, Paul ends his great chapter on the resurrection saying, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. May it be so for us this week. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us to see the story of Jesus and to know that that, that is the great story and we get to be a part of it by faith in him. And help us so work in hope of the resurrection, of the end of the story, that you would be glorified in our lives today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.